Welcome back to Walking Away from Arcadia. This is Victor, and I am here with my co-host, Simon. And we are joined today by Charlie Cantrell to talk about his latest offering on the Storyteller's Vault, Kiths of Arcadia. This is a new book. We've been looking at an advanced copy of it, so I expect it will probably be out when we release this episode. We're going to spend some time just talking about what's in the book, why someone might want to pick it up, and what Charlie's thoughts were when he put this together. So, Charlie, thank you so much for joining us, and tell us a little bit about this project, Kiths of Arcadia. Well, thank you for having me. Kiths of Arcadia is a book that's been rattling around in my head for a couple of years now. I just haven't really sat down to do it until now. I've been a fan of the Arcadia card game for a long time, and one of the things that I've always thought was intriguing about it were there uh, was that there were these playable options. They were called character cards in the game, and the majority of them were based on kiths or various other playable types from Changeling the Dreaming. Even though a lot of them weren't there at the beginning of the game, some of them got brought in later as the game went on. But in the end, there were seven playable character types in the card game that never really got brought over to the RPG. And I thought it would be really fun to make them playable in the role-playing game. And so that's what I've done with this book. I've taken those seven character cards and turn them into playable kits. So for someone who wanted to pick this book up, you know, you talked about making them playable kits. In looking through the book, each kit gets, is it is it a two-page splat? Do they end up, I think some of them end up being a little longer than that, or are no, they all no, standard two-page? They're all the standard two-page. That's actually my favorite format for introducing new kits. I wasn't as big of a fan of the 500-word kith block that was used for most of the kiths on C20, but C20 was already such a huge book and there was so much word count devoted to everything that needing to cut down the word count for kiths was kind of an understandable thing. But with this being a uh, Storyteller's Vault release, I could do it the way I prefer to do it. So so they're all the two-page spreads. So maybe it makes sense just to go down and kind of talk about each one. So the first kith... Army Ant Platoons, which <laughs> yes. kind of made my head spin a little bit. But tell people about Army Ant Platoons. What's what's the elevator pitch for them? Okay, the elevator pitch for Army Ant Platoons. Army Ant Platoons are kind of neat. In the card game, you had a playable card called Army Ant Platoon, and the picture on it was just a whole bunch of ants, and they all say, what is it? There is no I, only we we will defend the nest no matter what, or something along those lines. And honestly, if the mission of this book wasn't to make everything into playable kiss, these probably would work better as, as a chimera type. But it offered an interesting creative challenge to actually make them into a playable kith. So the way they kind of end up being in the role-playing incarnation, in this incarnation, is that they're a army ant platoon from the nest in Arcadia, that got stranded on Earth after the shattering. And so this platoon, there's no individuality within the platoon. They're basically a hive mind sort of thing. So the platoon itself underwent the changeling way and are now inhabiting a human body. 
I don't really play up the creep factor so much, but there is a certain amount of creep factor in them where there's this person who's actually a giant walking, talking ant nest, which is kind of a fun bit of imagery to me. Yeah, I've been a pretty big fan of the unconventional intelligence as a model for making strange things in Changeling. Mm -hmm. Um, I used a a birch colony as in an anime once and had a bunch of different facades and my initial reaction to the the army ants was oh i wonder if he knows about the the ant turf warfare that's been going on worldwide since we started spreading amazonian ants around the world (laughs) i did not know about that I do know, because I live in the middle of it, the fire ants, they keep advancing north. And when I was a child, the area that I live in now did not have any fire ants. But now, they're kind of everywhere, so... Yeah. Climate change is a wonderful thing. Uh, I lived in Texas for a while. I know all about fire ants. And right now, I'm sitting in Chicago, and it's like 50-something outside. I've been wandering Mm -hmm. around in my t-shirt. So... I don't really want to talk about fire ants right now. That sounds awful. <laughs> they are kind of awful. <laughs> but yeah, I did get some of the creep factor out of the uh, the army ant platoon. And I kind of, I think if I were going to use something like this, I would go straight to they are a little bit more like an anime and that the human thing is just a complete disguise. Not that it's like yeah. a changeling changeling. Yeah. That would be delightfully creepy. That would be very creepy. I did kind of, with one of their birthrights, I made it so that they could, so that the whole ant nest could just sort of scatter, and just so the person just sort of dissolves into a giant mound of ants and goes every in every which direction. Is so, it fire uh, ants that can do that rafting thing? Uh, I, I don't remember. I don't think it's fire ants. I think that's a breed of ants from one of the rainforests. I want to say maybe mm. the Amazon, because fire ants tend to be in really, really dry desert-like areas so i think that i i know what you're talking about and i think it's a a breed of ants that's common to one of the rainforests it would actually be really cool to do a a bunch of different breeds of these based on different (laughs) ant behaviors it it would that that would be neat (laughs) the other thing all different birthrights (laughs) yeah yeah the other thing i was thinking about with these i know charlie you're not always a huge fan of crossover but i couldn't help but think about the really interesting conflicts that could happen with the ananasi because the ananasi are so very similar Mm -hmm. and i i love the idea of an ananasi running into one or maybe even a whole motley of these things and getting the paranoid impression that the wear insects are coming back (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Even though that's absolutely not what's happening. That is not what's happening at all. But but that would be a fun encounter just to see how they would react to each other once they see... Uh, I could see the, the, the army platoons being a little bit like, hey, it's something kind of like us. This whole collectiveness, the, the changelings just on the whole aren't all about that, and neither are mortals. But but the Ananansi, they, they have the whole group of spider things going on. <laughs> so, yeah, and I could see that going very poorly for the army ants at first, because the Ananasi uh-huh. are so brutal. But, you know, changelings eventually get pushed to the point where, screw it, I'm going to unleash. And, man, mm-hmm. I don't I don't know how a shifter, even an Ananasi, would cope with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, 
let's go ahead and jump on to the next group. Okay. There, there are a number of these. The next one is the Dragonkin. Mm-hmm. And the Dragonkin were interesting to me because they show up in the C20 anthology. They they have sort of made their way into the written canon, as it were. I'll use canon softly here because I think the anthologies aren't necessarily meant to be hard canon, but still. Mm-hmm. But they haven't been playable. So could you talk a little bit about what the dragon kin are and how you approached writing them up? Sure. But a note on the Changeling Anthology first. That one was written by Jason... Uh, Isaacius, I think his last name is. I forget exactly. But uh, I've been talking to him a good bit because I really enjoyed his short story in there. And that one is actually a drake. And he has a whole kith write-up of the drake already ready to go. Uh, He just hasn't found a good opportunity to drop it into anything yet. (laughs) So I've been trying to talk him into uh, posting it on Storyteller's Vault. But in talking to him... We actually do have... There, there are some similarities because, you know, a dragon is a kith. There are certain archetypes that you think of with that. Even though there are some similarities, we approach them from a very different angle. So there's really room for dragonkin and drakes to coexist within the game. Kind of like the merfolk and the morganid. But on the dragonkin themselves, the card game really didn't have much about the dragonkin. Very, very little hard and fast. So I got to really sort of play with them, and I kind of decided to have a little fun with them. I, I had them be originally, they're the descendants, I should say, of, of dreamers that existed roughly 65 million years before humanity did. So these are the dreams of the dinosaurs, essentially, or at least the descendants of the dreams of the dinosaurs. After the the dinosaur civilization was wiped out. They were on the ropes, and their numbers were slowly and inexorably dwindling over time until the Tuatha de Danann rose up and decided to challenge the Fomorians. And the dragons, what was left of these ancient kiths, decided to throw their lot in with the Tuatha and just take a gamble. And in exchange, the Tuatha promised that there would be a room in the dreaming for dragons should humanity become ascendant. They couldn't guarantee that the dream would be the same as it used to be, but that there would still be a dream for them. And the dragonkin were what was born out of that bargain. Did they get what they bargained for? (laughs) I would like to think so. They went into it knowing that they wouldn't necessarily survive as they were, but something born from them would. Which So in a way, they continue on much like parents and children do, or (laughs) parents do through their children. That was some great timing. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So I I do have a question. There was one thing about the dragonkin that kind of jumped out at me. They are pretty clearly designed off high fantasy dragons, or I'd say the the more well-known European myths, the Horde, Mm Of, of stuff that they collect and, and the fire. I mean, it, they were very recognizable creatures. But mm-hmm. you you had an interesting bit at the beginning after talking about their origins where you invoked, you know, some of the other, you know, worldwide dragons that grew up because of this bargain. Do you 
sort of envision, I mean, obviously the scope of this book is somewhat limited. Everybody got their two-page splat. But do yeah. you envision that this would actually be a, a series of Kith? Because I could, you know, imagining, I think I think you specifically invoked, like, the Chinese dragons. The and Chinese they function dragons. Very, and yeah, the, they function very and differently. The, and the North and South American feathered serpents. Uh, yeah. They got to mention also. Yeah, which, I mean, uh, for those especially, I think the feathered serpent is the icon of the Changeling Kingdom in South and Central America, isn't it? The Kingdom of the Feathered Serpent? The Kingdom of the Feathered Serpent, yes. Yeah, so there's there's definitely a potential tie-in there. Do you see this being sort of like the, I guess, the connection between like the, the house spirits that show up in all the different places in Changeling? Or do you think that this kith would be... I guess, how do, you, how do you see that playing out? Um, well, for the purposes of this book, I see the kith being kind of standalone and the, you know, the others being manifested through visual description. But if I had, you know, unlimited word count, unlimited time, and, you know, a budget to support it, uh, <laughs> it would be a lot of fun to expand these guys into a whole sort of source book on dragons in the dreaming, because... Dragons show up everywhere in the Dreaming. And that's, at least it seems like it's been true since the earliest Changeling books. They seem to be a universal image within the Dreaming almost. Um, No matter what kind of realm you're in, there are dragons. Here there be dragons. And it would be really fun to just sort of explore that and answer why they seem to be everywhere. And having a whole sort of series of dragon kiths based around various aspects of dragons from human cultures across the world would be a lot of fun to delve into. Um, obviously, there's not much space in this book, <laughs> not not nearly enough space to go into that in this book, and the dragonkin are sort of a almost placeholder kith for that. If I were to have unlimited resources, the dragonkin, as they appear in here, would probably be one kith within that, and make them kind of the the European manifestation of the dream of dragons and then, you know, have other kits from other parts of the world. Um, I think that would be a really fun project. I don't know if it'll ever happen. In fact, I kind of doubt it, but it's a fun thought to think about. Yeah, the other thing I was curious about with the dragons is one of their birthrights, Child of Ouroboros. You Mm -hmm. did an interesting thing in sort of letting people build additional pieces of their mien as part of a birthright. And mm-hmm. it reminded me a little bit of the features from Dark Ages Fae. I mean, obviously much more focused on European dragon style mm-hmm. aspects, but I was curious if you were just trying to grasp at the things that make dragons dragons, or if you pulled a little bit from Dark Ages Fae when you built that. Dark Ages Fae was a definite inspiration for that. My original stab at them had them actually have an alternate form, and that birthright, they could spend a point of glamour and turn into their big dragon form, which is cool, but the more I thought about it and the more I sort of toyed around with it, the more I liked the idea of just being able to sort of build their Fae main and really customize it. So they get the very draconic appearance, but are still dragon people. They're they're dragon kin, they're not full-on dragons themselves. Uh, That might be something cool to do with a different kith, like the drakes that I talked about earlier. In the short story that they appeared in, I believe that they did actually turn full-on into dragons. So that would be fun to do. 
All right, the next kith that we're bringing in here are the imps. How do you see them fitting in? The imps I had a whole lot of fun with. They were the easiest ones in here to write, just by far. They were the easiest ones to write. They are wholesale pretty much what they were in the card game. The tempters, the tricksters, the devil-may-care attitude with just everything about them. The only thing I kind of embellished a bit was their origins. Their being the dreams of the church corrupting the image of the fae in people's minds. So instead of being these group of kind of small gods, they become fallen angels or demons or devils or that sort of thing. And so the imps were born of that. But they don't really mind that origin. They think it's kind of awesome. They just love to be themselves, and they love to to tempt people, and they love to bargain. And they know that they'll get what they want in the end, whether you know you want them to have it or not. It's just in their nature to possess whatever they want eventually. So I had a question about that narrative about where they come from. Mm-hmm. Are they born from those dreams, or are they kind of like an evolutionary splinter off where the two things came together? Oh, that's a good question. I had originally intended them to be born from those dreams, but a previous kith sort of being transformed a little bit as the myths changed would be a really cool take on it, too. Uh, You could have a lot of fun games with that. When I was reading them, the thing I couldn't help but think about is the presence of the imps in a world that, at least for some people, also includes Demon the Fallen. I will admit up front, I have not read Demon the Fallen front to back. I started reading it. It didn't grab me. But I've talked with a lot of people about it, and so I have a a sense of what the primary themes are, and there's a lot of overlap with Changeling. Mm-hmm. Um, there is. Um, I... I honestly, because it came out, it was released after Changeling was put on hiatus and, you know, soft canceled, I guess is the best way to put it. But it really felt like a thematic successor to Changeling. It has a whole lot of the same sort of themes, even if they're approached very differently and uh, implemented very differently. I honestly, Demon the Fallen is is one of my favorite uh, World of Darkness games. Changeling is my all-time favorite, obviously, but uh, but Demon's not far behind. <laughs> what I find interesting is I know that Demon didn't go heavy-duty into shame and self-loathing or anything like that, but mm-hmm. there is a sense of being fallen. There is a sense mm-hmm. of bitterness at the way the hand was dealt. And it's interesting having the imps among the fae because the imps are totally unrepentant. It's fine that we came from this ridiculous thing. Ha ha, you never should have spun us into life sort of thing. Um, yes, exactly. Is still just distinct enough from, I'll just say the edge they put on Demon, that I feel like it almost creates the sort of tension that would make me want to see a game where both of the lines existed in parallel. I found not a lot of people tend to want to do that. And I don't think Demon was written so much with Changeling in mind. I know it was written with some of the other lines in mind in terms of... Demon Demon is neat because it... uh, Honestly, of all the game lines, I think it has the most room for crossover. There's one of the Demon Houses that would 
fit very well in with changelings. They're all about inspiration and inspiring people and getting people to dream. And so it would be a lot of fun to see some crossover there between the demons and changelings. Whereas the demons from Fallen sauntered vaguely downward, the uh, imps just sort of took a cannonball dive off of where they were into devilhood. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a different sort of approach. The other thing I thought about while reading them is what do you envision their relationship with the rest of Concordia being? Because I could see them hitting quite a few other changelings banality triggers. Changelings fought really <laughs> hard against reshaping. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm curious how you envision them fitting into the overall society. I, I kind of envision them as being like the wheelers and dealers within Changeling society. The ones who can get you anything that you need, but uh, probably for a price. And it may not be a price that you're, that you're willing to pay in the long run, but when it first comes up, it doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> but, you know, in the end, they have your soul or the next best thing. The next group are the Mechorgs. This is one that that we chatted about a little bit. Could you give kind of a high-level description of the Mechorgs for listeners? Sure. The Mechorgs, they're not a kith in the traditional sense. They're, uh, in the card game, there was a Mad King Ironheart. He was a knocker, and uh, he ruled over Mechopolis. And he would do all this horrific experimentation with technology and experimenting on just everything. And the things that he created were absolutely horrific. He probably, he's probably pretty close to being a Dante, if not there already, and as a ruler in Arcadia. But one of his experiments that he was infamous for were the mechworks. He would kidnap Fae and uh, subject them to these brutal, horrific experiments and basically take the Fae apart and rebuild them so that they're almost more machine than Fae. But the fairy soul still lives within inside this mechanical, I don't want to say monstrosity, but that's how some of the other Fae probably view them. But the changeling heart is still there. The mind is still there. They haven't been changed mentally, only physically. They're the product of trauma, and they have to kind of learn how to live with their new reality. And that can be difficult for some of them. But eventually, I should say, they come out, and even though they've got this new reality, it becomes just their reality. It's something that they have to deal with every day, but they do deal with it. So... And I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to find something that I saw in the write-up. Do you envision the mechorgs as persisting in their reshaped form through reincarnations? I did not. I had a write-up in there. To date, there is no known way to reverse the process. The changeling lives out his remaining days as a mechorg until he's restored by the process of reincarnation. So once the soul leaves the body and it gets reborn into a new one, then the fairy soul becomes its original kith again. Well, that was something I had a question about, because I thought earlier you mentioned that when they originally awaken as mechorgs, 
the ones that survive the experience reawaken fundamentally broken as Dauntane. Don't no, no, Dauntane? no. It says that those that do usually reawaken fundamentally broken, branded as Dauntane, a minuscule few find their hearts still intact despite their bodies being irreparably altered. So most of the ones subjected to this experiment come out as Dauntane, but some of them come out as mechorgs. So if Does when that make they... Sense? Yeah, that, that, that part makes sense to me. I guess the part I'm trying to figure out how you envision kind of their life cycle working is mm-hmm. they were reshaped in Arcadia. Oh, I changed it a little bit for playability in the role-playing game at large. So in this version, the secret of creating them that Ironheart perfected has somehow gotten out into the Autumn Realm, and it's being disseminated among Dantain and the Black Court. So there are new ones being made in the Autumn Realm now by these various nefarious actors for their own purposes. Okay, I see. So that that makes sense. So then do you picture, again, going back to kind of like where they fit in Changeling society, this is a particular group where I feel like I know the two-page spread it kind of like fits the format of the project, but I mm-hmm. I want them but to it could be use a like lot more a writing. Book. <laughs> yeah, this this yeah. group in particular really uh-huh. feels like it needs a faction and a social context mm-hmm. and relationship. Do you envision them being largely like coordinated amongst themselves, connected to Dougal or other houses that might have you know an affinity for similar experiences? If you had to do an elevator pitch for, say, a totally paid, you had the time for it, like Kith book for these guys, what would be your pitch? Hmm, that's a good question. I would say that they kind of fill a role in changeling society, at least as how they're seen by other changelings, in a similar way to various people with disabilities or disfigurements are seen in human society. Um, so other changelings aren't necessarily really comfortable around them because of this horrific experience they've been through, and they're kind of a reminder to the other changelings about how fragile glamour and the dreaming and creatures of dream are, and how what they have can be altered very quickly. But the mechorgs themselves are survivors. They have been subjected to this process and they have the strength to continue and basically pick up what was left of their old life and kind of make a new one with the hand that they've been dealt. I could see uh, House Dougal taking in a number of these and be willing to help out. Of all the other changelings that are around, they seem to have the most parallels. Although with Dougal, they don't have necessarily the traumatic past that, that all mechorgs are subjected to. But even though there's very few mechorgs compared to the other kiths, I do kind of envision them helping each other out within fairy society and other changelings that have been subjected to trauma and things like that. And they also see them very involved in mortal society with survivors of traumatic experiences and helping out those with disability, especially those who weren't born with a particular disability and have to kind of learn to adjust to their new reality. 
But and if that was rambling and uncomfortable, it's because this was by far the most difficult kith in this book to write because I wanted to approach them with sensitivity to the reality a lot of people face who have been subjected to trauma or disability. And I didn't want to trivialize that at all in this write-up. I don't know. It's just my impression of them. They really fit in with Lost, I think. <laughs> there is a good bit of some of the themes of Lost that come through with these guys, especially the traumatic past and being remade into something new. That's really a lot of what these guys are. Well, and I feel like the one thing that makes them a little bit different from Lost. Like, I could see a group that is aesthetically almost identical to this existing and working in Lost, but having them framed as the tiny selection of these creatures that keep some fragment of their fairy soul whole and Mm -hmm. still love what they were and want to protect that it twists kind of the core experience of lost a little bit i could also see them easily going down the revenge route especially if mm-hmm. you know original kith was something like red cap or clurican but it's setting it all in a fairy context instead of a fetch human stolen life sort of context changes things a little bit mm-hmm. yeah My I, original draft actually played up the revenge aspect of them a lot more than the one I originally went with. I wanted this kith to be a bit more hopeful than that. (laughs) I didn't want revenge to be their only shtick. I think that there is a little bit of mention revenge in there still, but I wanted them to be more than that. So once I read my first draft, or I should say reread my first draft, I decided to go back and remove a lot of the revenge aspects because I wanted them to be more hopeful. I do really like the art. It's got kind of a Cyrax thing going on. (laughs) <laughs> I uh, honestly I love every piece that Elena has done so far it's just blown me away the mechorg art is just stunning and the imp art just absolutely nails their attitude and everything it's it's just so perfect yeah the art in this is really pretty fantastic I've been pretty blown away by all of it I haven't quite looked at the newest version that you sent us yet but I've seen a number of the pieces, and they're pretty gorgeous. They really are. I'm so happy that Elena said yes to illustrating this book. Now that I've seen the pieces that she's done, I I honestly can't think of anyone else who would have been better suited to do this. Leaving the tortured topic of mech orgs, we've also got the (laughs) Nagas. (laughs) The Nagas. The Nagas were, were another one that was... They weren't as difficult to write as the mech orgs, but they did present their own challenges. The Nagas are creatures of Hindu and Buddhist myth. They are a half-snake, half-person person. person. (laughs) But I really, in their write-up, I wanted to stay fairly true to the real-world mythology around them while adapting it to changeling. But these are myths from real-world religions, so I wanted to bring them in through the changeling lens, but also stay very respectful of their religious origins. And trying to find a good balance for that was difficult. But I think that the final product ended up working pretty well. It stayed very true to their myth as these divine protectors in the real-world mythology. Whenever there was something 
very important or something that the gods needed to protect, a naga would always show up to protect them. And that's what these nagas are all about. They're all about protecting pieces of the divine on earth or in the dreaming. Although since they're cut off from their divine homelands since the shattering, they've had to kind of revisit their divine mandate of protection, trying to figure out how to carry out their purpose in a world that the gods just don't roam freely in anymore. So they end up having to be selective about what it is they're protecting. And instead of a deity telling them, you must protect this thing, the world's a lot more nebulous for them. Um, They have to kind of figure out what needs protecting on their own. And for some, that could be other Naga. For others, it could be holy sites or holy artifacts. And for some others, it could be fragile places of the dream or the dreaming. So maybe an ancient, powerful treasure, they decide that they need to protect it. Or maybe there is a changeling who seems to be all these prophecies point to them having this great role, and so they decide to step in and protect this person to make sure that they fulfill their role in prophecy. So one thing that I found really interesting about the Naga is they scratch an itch I've had for a while in the game, wanting to explore changelings of religions that are still vital. Hinduism is not small. No, (laughs) Um, not at all. (laughs) Neither is Buddhism, although Buddhism is certainly, there are enough different sects of it that not all of the sects of Buddhism are tied to, you know, these particular myths, but still Mm -hmm. there's a huge worship base there connected Mm -hmm. to these myths. In the particular way that's always itched at my mind is I always wanted to take a stab at trying to tackle the Hisien mm-hmm. as a non-Far East Asia-specific phenomenon and just rewrite them as, this is what happens when you have changelings who still have enough belief in their you know human dreamer base that there is a worship dynamic, even if it's subdued. And mm-hmm. this strikes me as a kith that could have those sorts of dynamics. Did you think about that at all when you were writing them? I didn't, actually. That's That's a really neat take. It didn't even occur to me while I was writing them to see how their active belief in them would shape them in their present situation. I was really more concerned about trying to synthesize the mythology around them and the mythology of Changeling. So that's kind of the angle I took on them. But that would be really neat to explore in games, to see how a Naga would deal with actual real-world worship. And could they gain glamour from that? Yeah, it's one of the things Victor and I, I think if we talked about it, but not on the podcast very much, but Changeling the Dreaming is very much kind of a diaspora phenomenon, because all the things in Changeling are divorced from what they are in the homeland, like even the European stuff. Mm-hmm. Like you go to Iceland, you go to Ireland, and the context around the Aoshi is completely different from the way it's presented in Changeling. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's a thing Changeling will ever be able to do well if it's trying to be what it always was. Yeah, <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> yeah, so the, I guess the other more obvious thing that stands out about the Naga is the fact that the Naga, we'll say lowercase, already Mm -hmm. exist in the world of darkness as 
one of the changing breeds, which I think mm-hmm. I saw someone bring up uh, in exchange with you on Facebook. Obviously, this isn't the first time that Changeling has said, here is a dreaming manifestation of something that exists as something else in canon. Mm-hmm. But do you envision these Naga having any sort of relationship with the Snake Shifters? And what would you see that being? Well, I haven't read the Naga breed book, so I don't really know the werewolf Naga all that well. But I would see from the Changeling, the Dreaming perspective, these Naga would be the original Naga, the ones that directly referenced in the myths. And then the Naga of Werewolf are those that abandoned the Dreaming in favor of the mundane and have forgotten their true nature. Much like the Changelings see all the other supernaturals in the world of darkness, they're all the prodigals, and they have somehow managed to divorce themselves from the Dreaming, and so they're cut off from glamour, and so they don't really remember their true nature anymore. And, of course, the reality would be different in the other game line. So, Oh, for... yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the reality within Changeling the Dreaming. Or that's the way I would see the reality in Changeling the Dreaming. Yeah, that and that, that makes sense. Let's go down and talk a little bit about the Renegade Cogs, mm-hmm. who are... They're interesting. They remind me <laughs> of a lot of... Uh, other things, both in Changeling and in other game lines. So Mm -hmm. what are the Renegade Cogs? How did you approach them? So the Renegade Cogs, I didn't have a lot to go off of from the card game. The Renegade Cogs in the card game were automata built by the Mad King Ironheart, and they, for whatever reason, broke with their programming and decided that Ironheart was a menace and needed to be overthrown. So obviously I needed to kind of broaden them for use in the role-playing game. And these are another one that if I were doing a a straight translation of them, they'd probably be better off as Chimera than a Kith. But the mission of this book was to turn all the playable types into Kiths. So they presented another kind of fun, creative challenge. So the way I approached them was that the Renegade Cogs are creations that have surpassed being merely creations. Either it was because the creator was so skilled, the creator accidentally created a new life form, or through a quirk of the dreaming or their existence, they attained on their own a higher state of being and became a fae soul themselves. They're no longer just a construct. So life for them is a totally new thing. And they're having to kind of explore what it means to be alive. Honestly, Mr. Data from Star Trek The Next Generation was a big influence in my mind on these guys. Also, Pinocchio was another good inspiration for these guys as well. How do you see them distinguishing themselves from mannequins? That's a really good question. (laughs) I wasn't even thinking about the mannequins when I was writing these. These are created beings, whereas the mannequins... They're fairy souls that inhabit a created object, but they're still fairy souls born of the dreaming. These renegade cogs were built by an artisan or a programmer or a sculptor or whatever, and the person did such a good job on them, they ended up creating life somehow, (laughs) totally on accident. So the mannequins are born alive, but these guys attain life 
through other means. They have to figure out what it means to be fae, whereas all the other fae are kind of born with that knowledge because they've always been fae. They've been fae for, you know, thousands of years, and they'll continue to be fae for thousands of years. But these guys, an individual renegade cog was literally born yesterday, and they don't have that history or the dreaming as ever-present within them as the other kids do. So it's funny, Simon sort of beat me to the mannequin question, but approached it a little differently. I read these and immediately thought of the mannequins as well. Your description of how they're different is interesting because it kind of, for me, reinforces the story I'd want to cast them in. Uh huh. I'll sort of take a, a reverse role instead of asking you how you'd pitch their kiss book. I sort of have a pitch for the kiss book I'd, I'd want to do for these guys. In so many of the Changeling books, the Fae are defined by their wars. The mm-hmm. War of Trees, the War of Concordia, the New Accordance War. I mean, they're always at war. I really imagine a fantastic war between the Cogs and the Mannequins. Because you're you're right, I've always interpreted the Mannequins as what happens when some foolish, brilliant dreamer decides to craft an anchor into a doll, into the shape mm-hmm. of a human, and traps and reshapes an inanime, and leaves them in the incredibly gut-wrenchingly unenviable position of suddenly kind of wanting to be meat, with the way that the inanime hate meat. And then to have these brand new things get to be the real boy, like the sheer depths of hatred that opens up is so delicious. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I like I want to do a book about the like borderline genocidal war the mannequins would bring against them. <laughs> it would be terrible. <laughs> it would be, but it would be so much fun to read. <laughs> I would love to see that. The last Arcadian kith you're bringing in this book are the Tritons. What are they? So the Tritons are born of the dreams of the deep, the unknown in the deep. They are the dreams of sea monsters. The original Titan in Greek myth was kind of sworn to Poseidon. He was basically Poseidon's bodyguard and enforcer, so to speak. And these guys consider themselves born of the same dreams as Triton. So there's these sea monsters, but they're not just mindless monsters. They are monsters with a code. They are happy to work as monsters for people, but they need to be compensated in some way. And beyond that, each of them have an individual code that they follow. And it varies from individual to individual what that is. But they see it as necessary to keep themselves from becoming mindless monsters. They want to be monsters with a purpose. So one thing that I'm really curious about with the Tritons, and I suspect I know what your answer to this is, but I'm I'm still curious about your take. The mm-hmm. Myrrh, and I think it was originally the the Murderlotch, they were yeah. they were changed in, in C twenty, but mm-hmm. they were originally released in Blood Dimmed Tides. Mm-hmm. And Blood Dimmed Tides did a really interesting thing in that it was not a changeling book. It was a World of Darkness book that focused on all things of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fish gangrel and the myrrh and uh-huh. a little bit and of focus on 
shark shifters, um, shark et cetera. shifters and ghost ships and uh, technocracy underground or underwater bases. That sort of yeah, thing. Yes. exactly. And I'm probably one of the very few players who has legitimately used this book in a game. <laughs> um, it is notorious for being a very fun read and very difficult to to apply. It sure is. <laughs> but one of the things that it does that I found really interesting is through the whole book, it it continually says any sea-based supernatural has more in common with the other sea-based supernaturals than the other supernaturals from their line. A mer mm-hmm. would have an easier time relating to and engaging with a were shark than they would with a she. And same with, you know, fish gangrel and and ghosts of the sea, et cetera, et cetera. And I noticed in C20 that angle was definitely not emphasized, which makes sense given the goal of that core book. Mm-hmm. But where do you see the Tritons fitting in that framing? I honestly see the Tritons having a lot of the same views as the Myrrh, as far as the land dwellers kind of destroyed everything and are not to be trusted. But since these are crab people, (laughs) that sounds like something that belongs in they came from beneath the sea. I'm just saying, (laughs) last time I played they came from beneath the sea, we killed a whole bunch of crab people. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, since these are crab people, like real world crabs, they have both lungs and gills. So they are able to go between the sea and the land much easier than the merfolk do. So they are more willing to interact with land dwellers than the merfolk are, as long as, you know, they get something out of the exchange. So even though they they really don't like land dwellers so much, they're still willing to do work for them to be like a bodyguard or a knee breaker for a land dweller. But they're going to charge for it. They're not going to be somebody sea monster willy-nilly. They're going to go into it with some gain of their own in mind for doing it. So... Not exactly related to the Tritons, but one of my Mm -hmm. favorite topics when water things come up in World of Darkness. Which Mm -hmm. World of Darkness author do you think hates water? Because (laughs) somebody clearly hates water. (laughs) Because everything that happens in World of Darkness that has anything to do with the ocean is terrible. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, the ocean's kind of a scary place. When you're out on it, anyway, it's this big, vast emptiness and anything could be underneath the surface at any time and you'd have no idea so that there's a lot nice of... to me <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I will just say the the particular game where i used blood dim tides was sending a bunch of sorcerers crusade mages out a pirating on the south india sea and <laughs> i was all excited about it and it did not click quite the way i thought it would <laughs> No, I I would love to do more like beneath the surface in the abyss sort of stories. I was going to say, the only thing I've ever done with Blood and Tides actually in a game, because like you said, it's a really fun read, but incredibly difficult to use in a game. I had my players going through the dreaming, and I thought it would be fun to have them encounter a group of mer pirates. And so they ended up getting captured by these mer pirates and... The first mate on this pirate ship was a mermaid person. The satyr decided that the best way out of their situation would be to seduce his way out of it. And then he oh, kept the... No. And then 
And then the player decided that he wanted to keep the mermaid around. And so I had to come up with this history for like, she was just a description, you know, just for flavor. That's something that I came up on. Oh, those are the, the best. <laughs> and Every he decided time. <laughs> to keep her around as his pet NPC. So I had to come up with this whole backstory and everything for her. Uh... And she ended up becoming a mer princess who ran away from her kingdom to go become a pirate. <laughs> Yeah, the last time my players randomly adopted an NPC, I did not mean for them to adopt. He was like a high lord of the high guild, and I was just like, "Really? We're just we're just pulling a syndicate member into this traditions game? Okay, uh-huh. <laughs> why not?" <laughs> yep, my last one was an Orisha. That was she was literally there to hand somebody a rope. That was all I had planned for her. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so those are all the kiths that are included in this book. It's an interesting array of new tools. Do you think if you could pick one of them, if you decided, okay, I do want to go back and expand on this a little, but like limited time, if there was one of them that you really could dive into and like put in a whole framing in, in Changeling Society, which one would you want to do? If I could dive deeper into one of these, I would have a hard time deciding between the Dragonkin or the Naga. I really like the history I came up with for the Dragonkin. I would like to explore that some more. The Naga, though, they come from an untapped area of the world in Changeling. Like, even in the C20 Player's Guide, it didn't really go into India very much. And the Naga write-up that I did, it just offhandedly mentions another kith that has never shown up in another book ever has no write-up, but the Naga have a history with this other kid. And it just talks about them as though they're a thing, even though they've never been in anything ever. So it would be fun to to actually write up the other kid and really look into what the changeling population of India looks like. Yeah, I remember it was when we were doing the research for the Secret Way episode, and I was looking up the Kubera, who... Kubera originally is an Indian myth. There is mm-hmm. actually a group of entities in Hindu mythology that are basically just viewed like fairies. Oh yeah, the and the, the, the air women. And no, it's it's a little bit broader than that. Give me a second. I think I can probably find this. The Yakshas. Yeah. Oh, I'm thinking of the Apsara. Yes, yes, you are. The, yeah, yeah, so this is Wikipedia, so take with grain of salt, decent info, but not comprehensive. The Yakshas are a broad class of nature spirits, usually benevolent, but sometimes mischievous or capricious, connected with water, fertility, trees, the forest, treasures, and wilderness. They appear in Hindu, Jain, and Buddhist texts, as well as uh, a number of others. The feminine form of the word is Yaksi, or Yakshini, so it's a, it's a gendered term in language but they have a lot of similarities to fairies. As with most groups that are European, folding the changeling myth in is a bit of a stretch, but that's just a changeling, the dreaming challenge. (laughs) And then they have a relationship with the Kubera. I, I found them through looking up and trying to figure out the background of that word and why it was used in an anime. But I've always wanted to kind of dive into that because the Yakshas are a class of entities. It isn't like a, it wouldn't be a single kith. So yeah, that's an area I've always been very curious about because it, 
it feels unexplored. Mm-hmm. I like having the Naga as playable because I think there's an Adheen that's Indian and having mm-hmm. like one Indian splat and it be an antagonist always felt a little weird to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Same here. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I definitely feel like there is a very clear place to dive in and do this work, but mm-hmm. it India tends to get glossed over in the world of darkness with a few exceptions. So there's mm-hmm. definitely, it's a big lift. Yep. <laughs> it would be. Yeah. But it would be fun. But it would be really neat to dive into because there's such a rich mythology there that would be fun to explore. People who grab kits of Arcadia might notice on the credits page of the book, there is something called Radio Free Arcadia. I do want to highlight that because that's something that myself and Luca Carroll have been talking about for a long time, and we hope to expand it with other folks as well. But what it is, is it's folks who have worked on the C20 line trying to kind of continue the C20 line unofficially through Storyteller's Vault a little bit. So this is kind of the first book that has that banner, and if this one does well, we have plans for more in the future. But I don't want to spoil things too much yet because it will really all depend on how this book does this is really the test case to see if that's going to be a viable venue or not well that's certainly exciting i hope (laughs) this book does very well for obvious reasons it would be (laughs) great to see more content from the c20 authors that would be very very exciting I, I hope we get to too. <laughs> I've got well, there's some really fun ideas that we would love to do, but uh, we're not sure if it's going to be viable or not. So sure. If you are interested in any of the kits that were described in our little conversation about kits of Arcadia, we will have a link to the product on the Storytellers Vault for you in the episode description. And I'd just like to thank. Charlie for being here with us and Victor for putting up with me and the rest of you for listening and we'll catch you next time on Walking Away from Arcadia. 